Today on Bread for the Broken with James Grizzle, pastor of Calvary Chapel, Galveston. This is what this looks like to follow Jesus. And and I'm going to tell you right now, it's not all suffering. It's not all pain. It's not all sorrow. It's not. But that's a part of the equation. It is a part of the equation. But you have a good shepherd who already knows what you're what you're going to go through because and he himself has been there and he knows how to lead you through those scenes and those scenarios. And what I wrote under that little verse, Mark 8:34 is Jesus is worth following. Today, Pastor James is going to remind you that pain, suffering, and trials are all a part of following Jesus. There's going to be moments in your life where you want to quit being a Jesus follower. You're going to question why bad things are happening to you. How could God allow that? You have to remember that Jesus himself went through more suffering than most of us can imagine. He died the most brutal death and suffered the most public humiliation so that we could all have eternal life. Now here's Pastor James in the book of Mark chapter 15 with today's edition of Bread for the Broken. So here's Pilate, and Pilate's just intrigued by Jesus because he's like, you're not acting like a normal criminal. You're not acting like, and you know, you and I know this, we, we know when people are guilty of something, I mean, they will go above and beyond to, you know, declare their innocence and they'll make up stories. And the more elaborate the story is, the more that you know they're lying. Like, that's true, right? You, you know that. And it's like, oh, why are all these details in the story? Jesus is just there, quiet. Pilate asks him, you're the king of the Jews? Yeah, you said it. You said it. And then Pilate's just like, I think he's just kind of in awe of this whole thing. He didn't, Jesus didn't need to defend himself. He didn't need to do any of that. And Pilate presses more. It says, you know, as a verse three, the leading priests kept accusing him of many crimes, which they had no other witnesses to these things. Just so you understand this, they're just shouting out things. They're just shouting out things. And they're probably watching Pilate's expression as he's like smiling at them, because Pilate hates these guys, by the way. He does not like these religious leaders at all, at all. And so he's kind of like, he's kind of a punk in one sense where he's like messing with these guys, okay? But he's listening to their, their accusations and nothing's affecting him, nothing's affecting him, right? So then they have to like search for like, okay, well, let's try this one. Let's try this one. Let's try this one watching his facial expressions. And as they're throwing out these accusations, Pilate's like, aren't you going to say anything? Aren't you going to defend yourself? So they're, they're throwing him out. Many crimes, many crimes. Pilate asks him, aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they're bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing. Why? I don't have to defend myself. He doesn't need to defend himself. And his silence doesn't prove that he's guilty. In fact, in this Roman, you know, courtroom scenario, they didn't think if like, well, if you don't say anything, then you're, it's because you're guilty. They didn't, they didn't think that way. So Pilate, I mean, his brain's, his brain's just spinning where he's like, man, they're just coming at you like crazy. And he can tell this is, and we see that even in the text, he, it'll let us know. He knows like, you guys have a personal issue with this guy. This has nothing to do with like legality. 
This has nothing to do with any of that stuff. You guys just don't like this guy. So he's smart enough. He's picking up on all that stuff. But he's, again, he's just like, why aren't you saying anything? And I think Jesus just models yet another good example for myself and for you. You don't always have to defend yourself. You don't always have to. People come at you with different accusations. I don't know. I mean, if, hopefully they're not true. If they're true, then hopefully you would you know, own that. And if there needs to be an apology, then make that apology. But if you've served in ministry for any length of time, you understand what these accusations can look like, sound like, and feel like. And they're not always true. That's the sad thing about working in a church. That's the sad thing about the church as a whole is that I, I've been around long enough. Like I said, October 1st will be 19 years of full-time ministry. 19 years of full-time ministry. And what I've seen is within the church walls, people are mean. People are mean. I'm like, ah, this is... A, and it was, it was a little bit of a, a, a shock to me when I first got into it because I didn't grow up in church. I mean, I had a little bit of church exposure and all that good stuff growing up, but I didn't go to church. I didn't want to go to church. I didn't, I didn't want anything to do with the church. Then I found myself working at a church and then exposed to like, oh man, you people are vicious. This is crazy. As I watched my pastor get like, just dragged across the coals and just like all of this stuff. And I'm like, and then even other pastors that I admired and they're like, oh, this is normal. This is normal. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, what is wrong with us that, we, that this is allowed? But, you know, if accusations are true, then accusations are true. And then hopefully whoever they're against, if it's a leader, then the leader owns those things, repents of those things, does what's necessary within that. Unfortunately, though, just like within this scene, a lot of what's said isn't always true. And the best thing that you and I could do in this kind of scenario it's not to say anything at all. Don't say anything. Let the Lord be your defense. Let the Lord be your defense. You have no better defense than him. And I, I learned that. I, I saw that modeled by, as I was at Bible college with Chuck Smith, who what I learned was he always had people accusing him of this, that, and everything else. And he would just, it never phased him. It never phased him. He's like, the Lord will be my defense. I'll address what I need to address, but concerning baseless accusations and all that stuff, he's like, I don't, I don't lose sleep over that stuff. And I remember reading a quote from Charles Spurgeon who said, when he was asked, what, what do you do with troublemakers when they come to your church? He's like, I put them to work. He's like, I find they have a hard time causing trouble when they're so busy doing work, right? And he said this statement, he says, he says no man will ever bother me because I will not let him. And, and, and that always stuck out to me. And, and it just reminded me of this, just this of like, whatever it is, whatever the drama and all that stuff, if it's baseless and there's no, nothing to it at all, let the Lord be your defense. Let the Lord be your defense. And here is the Lord standing on stage with Pilate. And he's just like, I'm not saying anything. Why aren't you going to say anything? I don't have to say anything. This is nonsense anyways. I can tell. You can tell. Other people in the crowd can tell. This is nonsense, but this is what has to happen. So much to Pilate's surprise, he's, you know, he's just astonished by this man, Jesus. Pilate in Luke's gospel, Luke 23, lets us, you know, lets us know that Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. He knew he was innocent. He absolutely knew he was. 
But you got this multitude of, of this crowd, and, and more than likely, the people who are present at this time were not the ones. There could have been some carryover from the triumphal entry on that, that happened the Sunday before. But um, more than likely, most of the people within this crowd are just Jews from Jerusalem who don't have a whole lot of personal attachment to Jesus. Okay? Could there have been some from the triumphal entry when they're like, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Yes, there could have been some carryover there. But we can't say dogmatically that that crowd is this crowd. This could be a totally different crowd of Jews who are like, yeah, we heard of this guy. We've heard of him. But the Sanhedrin, these religious leaders, they had no problem going through the crowd and stirring them up and suading them to their side to crucify so that's their work in the crowd as Pilate's talking to Jesus. There were some other scenes that's not recorded in here where Pilate, you know, he takes him into the, into the house, so to speak, and he, he wants to have a little one-on-one with Jesus. Pilate's own wife came to him and said, don't have anything to do with this guy. I just had like a nightmare about this guy. Like, don't mess, don't have anything to do with him. All this stuff is going on. But the pressure is building for Pilate because number one, if he doesn't calm this, this situation down, then he could lose his job. Because all, all, all he needs is another story to get back to Rome, and then he will lose his job. He doesn't want to do that. So he has to squash this thing before it becomes a riot, which is where he could see it going. So in verse 6, it says, at, you know, it was the governor's custom each year during Passover celebration to release one prisoner. Okay, that's a nice thing to do, I guess. Anyone the people requested. Normally, it would be like somebody who was maybe detained or arrested for a slight charge kind of a thing. On a normal Passover, they would not be asking for Barabbas. No other time in, the, in, in Passover history would they be asking for Barabbas. Never. Okay? But this day's a little different. So verse 7, one of the uh, prisoners at the time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder. So he's, the, the, that term there, revolutionary, it really is an insurrectionist. And it could also be, like I said before, you could label them as a terrorist. So this is a guy who is guilty of murder. He literally killed somebody. He was leading a group of people in rebellion and he, they murdered someone. He deserves to be in jail. You, you murder somebody, you should go to jail. That's what I think. I know our country doesn't function like that anymore. It's kind of weird where you commit a crime, then they don't do anything to you. I'm like, oh, I don't, that's amazing. I just saw a story in California. A mom and her eight-month-old child got ran over by a guy who was on drugs and he stole a car. And oh, I'm sorry, he was allegedly on some drugs, okay? Because you got to say that stuff nowadays, right? No, he was stoned, and he ran over this woman and her baby, and he got seven months. Seven months of, the, of get this, not jail time. What they liken to a pretty difficult summer camp. Pretty difficult summer camp. And he has to be released early. It's because this is L.A. County, and the knucklehead who's running that doesn't have a clue of what he's doing, okay? And I can say that. I have family that are over there, and I feel sorry for them. I feel sorry for a mom, and praise God, the mom and the baby survived. And they're they're like, oh, seven months. It's kind of like boot camp. But really, if we're honest, it's like a difficult summer camp, is what they said. I'm like, why isn't he in jail? Why isn't he in jail? Why aren't some of these other people in jail? There was another funeral yesterday for a kid. They got 
And how many, do you, how many times was that for that guy? This was his fourth one. Why wasn't he in jail? Why was he out? There's some people who deserve to be in jail because of crimes that they commit, and they shouldn't be let go. This is how, this, in my logical, linear brain, this is how I think things should go. But we live in a world where that's all topsy-turvy. And in this scenario, I'm thinking like, Barabbas, you don't want to let Barabbas go. That guy's dangerous. He's dangerous. And if he killed once, there's a good chance he'll do it again. We don't know what happened with Barabbas. Maybe he got saved because he's like, you literally are dying for me. Literally, Jesus died for one man. And his name was Barabbas. Because Barabbas, that third cross was Barabbas' cross. That should have been him. And they're like, give us Barabbas, the murderer? Yeah, 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 we'll take that guy. We'll take him. <laughs> really? Well, yeah, no, we'll, we'll re- rehabilitate him. It'll be cool. It'll be fine. Um, yeah, it'll, it'll work out, I'm sure. It always works out, yeah. They asked for Barabbas. They didn't just ask for Barabbas. They, they demanded Barabbas. You know, they're, they're working the crowd, you know, and so they ask them, you know, do you want me to release the king of Jews? This is verse 9. I'm sorry, let me I skip verse 8. They, the crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release the prisoner as usual. There you go. Verse 9, verse 9. Would you like me to release to you the king of the Jews? Again, he's working the crowd because he knows he's getting at these guys. He realized by now that the leading priest had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this point, the leading priest stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked them, then what should I do with this man? You, you call the king of the Jews. And he's throwing that back on them. He's like, you're the one telling me he claims to be a king. So he must be your king because he's not my king. Because in Pilate's eyes, there is one king and his name is Caesar. It's like, what do you want me to do with your king? Now, you can, you can understand, you can feel the, you know, just the, um, the mockery that's happening within his tone, okay? Very sarcastic, I'm sure, is Pilate within this, this little scenario here. They reply back, they shout back, crucify him. Crucify him. Kill him. That's going to catch Pilate's attention as well. And I think he begins to dawn on him the, the depth of the hatred. It's not just envy. Because we went from envy into hatred. Because it would be one thing like, oh, you want me to lock him up? Okay, fine. You know, what should I do? What should I do? Kill him. Kill him. We want him dead. We want him dead. And we want him dead now. We want him dead today. Kill him. Pilate answers, he replies back, why? What crime has he committed? And you could tell, it, for him, it probably just got real. Like, it just got serious. Okay, the fun and games are over kind of a thing. He's, he's messing with them and all that good stuff, but now he's like, whoa, 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 hold on. This guy's innocent. This guy hasn't done anything. But he was already stuck. Pilate was already stuck. They had him positioned exactly where they wanted him to be positioned. The mob roared even louder, crucify him. We go on to to shout that out, and that's a repeated thing, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The the crowd, the the noise from the crowd would, would continue to just grow and grow and grow to where Pilate had to act. They forced him. They forced his hand in this matter. He had to act, and he had to act quick because this thing's going to get out of hand really quickly. So he's like... To pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and he ordered Jesus flogged with the lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Now, 
that's like one little verse. That's like one sentence that Mark has within there, but there's, there's more that happens within there. But so he does release Barabbas to them. And then he has Jesus scourged. Okay. Or flogged. That's where these Roman soldiers would take these whip like instruments, usually a small handle kind of thing with some leather straps. And it's either pieces of metal or pieces of bone or pieces of glass, just whatever they could get. They would tie into these straps. And so then they would take those things, and the Jews had a rule. You can only hit somebody so many times. The Romans didn't have that rule. They had, they had no rule. So there in their presence, and however they would have him, you know, either stretched out over a log, you know, with his leaning over like that, so his, his whole back is just exposed, standing up or, or arms around, something like that, they would take one of these instruments and they would just go to town. Just go to town. And you, what you have to take into consideration is at this point, that hematidrosis that Jesus had already gone through where the capillaries are all bursting, like his skin is already sensitive. So it's going to, the pain is just going to be compounded. And so they just start beating him and it's going to start with contusions, you know, bruises, and then the, the bones or whatever set in there, it's going to hook. And then his flesh is going to get ripped away. And in doing this, Pilate is probably trying to pacify the crowd. He's trying to pacify the crowd. Like, maybe if I do this, maybe I just wreck him. Just totally wreck this guy. They'll be happy with that. And even after this process where they do this and they... And they his back, I mean, there's, the skin is, it's hanging in, in strips and his, you could see his rib cage back there and the, the muscle structure and all that gets up. Like you could see these things. A lot of times guys died from this. And you got the blood loss. You have no sleep. You have no food. You have no water. And you just did that to an innocent man. And, and what we know that Mark doesn't include is that then Pilate has Jesus stand before the crowd he says, behold, the man, right? And in one sense, maybe letting them, communicating to, him, to them, this is the same guy that you delivered to me. I know you can't recognize him right now because his face is swollen and because he's covered in blood, but this is the same guy. Behold, the man. And their response, kill him. We're not satisfied. We're not satisfied. We demand that you kill him. And then that's where Pilate delivers him over, you know, over to them. And he's got to, as a prisoner, he has to carry the, what would probably be just the cross beam section of the cross itself through a parade, so to speak, communicating to all who are watching, don't you dare mess with Rome. Don't you dare mess with Rome. And he's got to march this beam, which was too heavy for him to carry, and they would have somebody, and we're going to see that next week, but they'd have somebody help him carry that beam to his place of execution. But even within there, before we get to that part, you see in verse 16, 16 through 20, the the soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters, the praetorium, and and called out the entire regiment. A regiment could be upwards of 600 soldiers, Roman soldiers. They dressed him in a purple robe, right? Purple is the color of royalty. So they found an old crusty robe that probably was faded that maybe had a little bit of purple left into it and they're going to put it around that back that they just brutalized. 
they wove thorn branches into a crown and they put it on his head, probably piercing his scalp, probably. They gave him a scepter and then they saluted him and taunted, hail, king of the Jews. These are the Romans. These are the Roman soldiers who are doing this. Says they struck him on the head with the reed stick. That's probably a little scepter that they gave him to make him look like a king, so to speak. Says they spit on him. The Greek there is actually they continually spit on him. Not once, but they were constantly. You have 600 soldiers. Then they dropped to their knees in mock worship. Verse 20 is telling. When they were finally tired of mocking him. When they were finally tired of mocking him. They're like, this is getting old. Let's take him and kill him. When they got to that point, we don't know how long that was. But they got to a point where they were like, okay, we've had our fun. Now let's finish the job. They took off the purple robe. Remember, that's on his back. They got to take that thing off. They put his own clothes on him, again, on that back, and they led him away to be crucified. They marched him through the city, out through the city gates, to the place called Golgotha, which we call Calvary, which is why we're called Calvary Chapel, by the way. It's because of the most beautiful acts ever happened, Calvary, where he died for us. They marched him there. But I want to remind you of this, because again, I told you it's going to get heavy. Anytime you talk about Jesus and what he had to go through, I don't care who you are, that's heavy stuff. Like, I don't like, I don't like reading through it. I, don't, I mean, it's good for my soul and me, but um, it's just heavy. It's heavy. And I, I want to remind you from a previous verse that we read and studied through probably months ago, Mark 8, 34. Jesus calling to the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And follow me. And this is one of the roads he went down. This is what this looks like to follow Jesus. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, it's not all suffering. It's not all pain. It's not all sorrow. It's not. But that's a part of the equation. It is a part of the equation. But you have a good shepherd who already knows what you're, what you're going to go through, and he himself has been there, and he knows how to lead you through those scenes and those scenarios. And what I wrote under that little verse, Mark 8, 34, is Jesus is worth following. He is absolutely worth following. When I read through this story, all it does is it sparks a thing inside of me of like, man, Jesus all the way to the end, to the end. I will, you, you, walk through, you walk through this for me to the end. Let's finish this thing. I'm going to go with you, Jesus. I'm going to fall down all, the, all along the way, and he's gracious. He'll pick me up. He'll dust you off. But we're going to a finish line. We're going to a finish line. And there's no better Savior in this world. I don't care what other religions may say. There's nobody better than Jesus. No one. No one. He's the best. You hear me say that often. Jesus is the best. Absolute. Hands down. Nobody compares to him. Hope to the hopeless, hopeless, red for the broken 
Thanks for joining us today here on Bread for the Broken with Pastor James Grizzle. We're walking through the Gospel of Mark, one of the accounts of Jesus' life while he was here on the earth. Mark offers unique perspectives on this time, emphasizing Jesus' servanthood to the people that he met. Jesus loved practically, often, and with everyone. What a kind and humble servant we get to serve. If you need to hear this message again or you'd like to catch up on previous teachings, visit our website at breadforthebroken.com. Once you're there, simply click on the Listen tab and feel free to explore the variety of verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter Bible teachings. Bread for the Broken is a ministry of Calvary Galveston. And if you're ever in the Galveston area, we would love to have you come visit us. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. for a time of worship and Bible study. Our Thursday night Bible study starts at 7 p.m., and you're welcome to come join us for both. Our atmosphere at Calvary Galveston is relaxed, so feel free to come just as you are. For more information, visit our website. Once again, that's breadforthebroken.com. You can get directions there as well. We're excited to meet you and spend some time worshiping with you. That's all the time that we have for today, but we're so glad that you listened in to hear from God's Word. We encourage you to read ahead in the book of Mark and to gear up for what's ahead in this New Testament book. There's so much to learn, so much to know about Jesus. So make plans to join us again, right here on Bread for the Broken. Let me paint the picture of you.